11 and 12. Let's hear the word of the Lord from 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. Peter writes, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let's pray to the Lord. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for the revelation of your word. It speaks truth and life to us. Open up this portion to our understanding. Send your spirit to illuminate it. Assist the preacher. Assist us all to hear your true word and put it to work in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There are two things about the apostolic commands in the New Testament. Commands given by the apostles. First of all, they're authoritative because they're based on the life and teaching of the historical figure of Jesus Christ, accurately recorded. And they were given and presented by the guidance of the Spirit of the living God. And they're given in love by the apostles to the believers of those days and to believers in all ages. They're given in love despite the remaining sins and weaknesses of the Christian believers, in spite of their immaturity as Christian disciples. Note how Peter follows this pattern as he begins this section in 1 Peter 2, verse 11. He says, Beloved, first thing he says, He's going to talk about sins of the flesh, but he wants them to know that he loves them, okay? He's writing to people who are still wrestling with sin. He's writing to people who are engaged in fierce internal spiritual battles, trying to conquer those old sins that still try to cling to them like a wet t-shirt that you try to pull off. But Peter, just like Paul was a great man of love. He loved the people of God. He loved them no matter their race or ethnicity, whether they were Jew or Gentile. So he begins his apostolic commands in this section by saying, Beloved, that is, beloved ones. He's letting these saints know that he loves them, and that's a major reason he's giving them these strong commands. Now, the commands of the apostles are just as authoritative and binding on us as if the Lord himself issued them. He commissioned the apostles to preach and to teach all that he had preached and taught. So they were to stand in his place and instruct the churches in the doctrine of Christ and the doctrine of the Christian life. These apostles were inspired and guided by the Holy Spirit they were commissioned by Christ to speak in his behalf so that an apostle under the guidance of the Holy Spirit 
when he issues a command, we the church are to pay attention, to take heed, to follow it, and to obey it. Because the Lord himself is speaking through his servant. These two verses in 1 Peter, there are only two commands. One we could say is negative, the other is positive. Something we ought not to do, and something we need to do. Well, what is, first of all, the negative command? Look at verse 11. It says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. First of all, we need to ask the question, what does Paul mean by the flesh here? Well, the word flesh in the Bible can have several different meanings depending on the context, depending on the way it's used. It can actually refer to the human body, uh, or it can refer uh, at times to humanity in general. For example, in Luke 3, 6, it says, All flesh shall see the salvation of God. It's talking about the human race. Or it can refer to our sinful nature that we were born with, and it causes us so much trouble by producing sin in our lives. That can also be referred to as the flesh. Well, actually, this is the meaning here in this verse. Well, spiritually speaking, what is the flesh? Well, it's been described as, here's the way one, uh, one theologian describes it, the, the impulses belonging to the selfish and lower side of human nature. Professor Leon Morris describes it this way. He says, The flesh denotes the whole personality of man as organized in the wrong direction, as directed towards earthly pursuits rather than to the service of God. Well, to be in the flesh means to be in a mindset, a behavior that is consumed with human interests, human pleasures, that leaves God and his will out of the picture. Romans chapter 8, beginning of verse 5, gives, gives us some good insight into this, this whole issue of the flesh and the spirit. Uh, Paul writes in Romans 8, 5, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, speaking to the church, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. So there's a way to be released from the power and the bondage of the flesh. It's by the power of the indwelling Spirit of God. Without the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, there's no possibility of being released from the captivity and the power of the flesh. Well, the Bible's pretty explicit here and gives us some examples of Works of the flesh, Galatians 5.19 says this, The works of the flesh are evident. He lists nine of them. 
sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, which is hatred, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Paul says, I warned you, I warned you, Paul says this, I warned you, as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So, it's a pretty serious warning and charge here. Now, there's 15 of these, I think I said 9, there's 15 of these sins of the flesh. Well, if you, if you listen and, and think about them, they don't all concern the body, sins of the body, such as sexual immorality. What is sexual immorality? It's having sex with someone outside of marriage. But these sins can include also sins of the mind and attitude, like enmity, hatred, jealousy, anger, envy. Sins of the mind, the heart, the body, all these can be sins of the flesh. Sins of self-centered, selfish humans who ignore God or deliberately rebel against God. So what specific passions of the flesh, Paul says, I urge you to abstain from the passions of the flesh. What might he be referring to? Well, I'm sure he's referring to sexual sins, among others, such as lust, Pornography, promiscuity, adultery, fornication, homosexuality, <coughs> as well as other sins of the body, of the flesh, such as drunkenness, drug abuse. But I don't think we can limit these passions of the flesh, flesh only to sexual sins because we can be passionately angry. We can be brimming with hatred. We can be stubbornly unforgiving. We can be constantly bitter about something or someone. So the mind and the attitudes can carry us off also into sins of the flesh. All these things are opposed to God, to God's nature. Well, but those who are in Christ begin to develop a whole new mindset, a whole new way of thinking and relating to people. It's because the Spirit of God is working in our hearts through the Word of God to change us from the inside out. If we go on in Galatians 5, we read after the works of the flesh, we see the fruit of the Spirit. Listen to the big change, what the Spirit of God does in our hearts. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, <coughs> Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against, against such things there's no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. There's the secret. Those who belong to Christ Jesus... If we belong to Christ Jesus, we're on the right road. We're on the right track. Because he gives us the power 
to crucify the sins of the flesh, to put them to death. It's not our power. We don't have it. It's his power. Yet we are involved in the whole process with the totality of our human being. But he's working within us to bring us along the path of sanctification, that is growth in holiness. Becoming more and more separated from the thinking and the behavior of the world and its evil practices and more separated out unto Christ and that holy way of living that marks those who belong to their holy Lord. So, Peter's dealing here with this command for us to abstain from the passions of the flesh. He begins by saying, Beloved, I urge you. Now, other translation, English translations of this phrase, I urge you, would be, I exhort you, I beseech you, that's Old English, King James, or I encourage you. So the idea of urge here, Paul says, I mean, Peter says, I urge you to abstain from these sins. It carries the idea of a strong appeal. Now let me give you a couple of other examples where this phrase is used in the New Testament. Uh, you remember when Paul was taking the ship to Rome and they met a great storm in the Mediterranean Sea. And they threw everything overboard and they were trying just to survive. And then Paul says to everybody on the ship, he says, therefore, Acts 27, 34, therefore I urge you to take some food for it will give you strength for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. So he's appealing to them. And then Romans 12, 1 uses this expression also. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, Paul is making an appeal. It's not just a suggestion from him. It's not a subtle hint. You can do this if you happen to feel like it, if you're in the mood for it. No, Paul is throwing the weight of his human energy and his apostolic authority into this exhortation. It's like he's taking these Roman Christians and he's looking at them in the face. He's shaking, shaking their shoulders and he's saying, you've got to do this. You've got to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. To please the Lord, you have to do this. It's your spiritual worship. You owe this to Christ for all that He did for you. He sacrificed Himself. He bore your sins. You need to respond to Him and put your life on the altar of consecration and dedication to Christ. Now, Henry Martin was a man from England who went to Asia as a missionary back in the early 1800s, Henry Martin. And he dedicated his life to translating the scriptures into several of the Indian languages. And he prayed, Lord, let me burn out for you. He died at age 31 of the plague in Turkey. He didn't live very long, but he lived well for Christ. He got a lot accomplished in his short life. <clears throat> Well, Peter 
gives two reasons why these Christians should abstain from the passions of the flesh. First of all, it's because of their citizenship. He calls them sojourners and exiles. Their real citizenship was in heaven. Since Christ saved them, the anchor of their souls was in heaven. Their hearts and their minds were no longer glued on the earth with all of its pastimes and pleasures and sins, but was now fixed in another location in heaven where Christ is seated at the Father's right hand. On earth, they had changed their status. They had become foreigners, strangers, pilgrims. Sometimes the word aliens is used. So they belonged to another realm, but they were living here temporarily on earth. We sang this uh, song just a little while ago that Wayne had for us today. I'm a stranger here. I'm a st- it fits the uh, context perfectly. I'm a stranger here within a foreign land. This is the song of the Christian. My home is far away upon a, a golden strand, a golden shore, I think that means. Ambassador to be of realms beyond the sea. I'm here on business for my king. So, we're strangers here as aliens within a foreign land. And so our lives should be characterized by a detachment. A detachment to this world. We live in houses, apartments, but our real home is in heaven where Christ is. We work at jobs, but our supreme boss is really the Lord Jesus Christ. We have family members that we're connected to by blood, but many times we're even closer to our church members and the church. Uh, We have more in common with them sometimes with our own brothers or sisters. Sometimes our blood relatives can be Christians also, and so that gives us a double bond with them. But we have a new relationship with people, with this world, with God. So the first reason uh, Peter gives us for abstaining from these uh, lust of the flesh is because we are no longer citizens of this world, but we are citizens of that world where Christ is King and Lord and Ruler. Now there's a second reason Peter gives us for abstaining from the passions of the flesh and that is because they are spiritually dangerous to us they are damaging they wound us they tear us apart spiritually the passions of the flesh will tear us apart they won't kill us they won't separate us from Christ but they will greatly disrupt our peace, our emotions, our joy, they can be very damaging to us. So Peter tells us to abstain from them. Stay away from them. Forsake them. Put them behind us. Move away from them. Relegate them to the trash heap of our former way of life. Well, there's some other texts in the New Testament that use this word abstain from. 
For example, in Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem council came together to decide what restrictions they might put on the Gentiles coming to faith, if any. So this is the letter they wrote to the Gentiles. Acts 15, 28. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, four requirements to the Gentiles, that you abstain, same word that Peter used, you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Well, these were the four practices the leaders of the church determined the Gentiles had to give up, had to abstain if they were to be members of the Christian church. Foods had been sacrificed to idols, eating blood, or what had been strangled, and from sexual immorality. There was nothing else. The males did not have to be circumcised like Jewish males. They didn't have to follow the law of Moses. Now, here's another phrase that uses abstain from. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 Paul writes, This is the will of God, your sanctification, that is your setting apart unto God, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Same idea here. Christians were recognized by the pagan culture for their high moral standards. Paul goes on in 1 Thessalonians 5.22, abstain from every form of evil. Not just sexual immorality, but every form of evil. Peter is saying to the Christian people, you need to abstain from these passions of the flesh because they wage war against your soul. They're out to destroy you, these passions of the flesh. Amen. Now, he says they wage war against your soul. This is a present tense verb which indicates it's an ongoing thing. It doesn't end. It's a spiritual fight that lasts throughout the Christian life. You find yourself tempted by the passions of the flesh? Well, you're not alone. This is an ongoing battle in the Christian pilgrimage that we are on. They wage war against our souls, these passions of the flesh. They fight against us. They carry on a military campaign against us. They try to conquer us. They try to pull us away from Christ to destroy our witness and to throw us into mental and spiritual emotional turmoil. They are dangerous. Peter says, abstain from them because they wage war against you. They're out to get you and me. Now, this term wage war is used in the New Testament in several places. 1 Timothy 1.18 Paul speaking to Timothy says, I charge you, I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. He's telling Timothy, you need to fight. You need to fight the good warfare. 
holding faith and a good conscience. That is, you fight this spiritual warfare by faith and seeking to have a good conscience, a clear conscience, being faithful to avoid the passions of the flesh. In 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5, Paul writes, Though we walk in the flesh, that is, in the body, we're not waging war according to the flesh, but the weapons of our warfare, that's that word warfare, are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So, Paul is describing the spiritual warfare that goes on. Yes, the devil's against us, but we're against him also and against evil in our lives and in the world. So, we use spiritual weapons, truth, prayer, submission to God, church worship, church fellowship. All these things are spiritual weapons to fight the passions of the flesh. Unfortunately, Satan has been very crafty and very successful and derailing many Christians because they fell into passions of the flesh. That's why we must declare all-out war against Satan and against sin especially in our own lives. We must not yield a moment. The command is absolute. Abstain from the passions of the flesh. Two reasons. Because of our citizenship and because they wage war against our souls. Now, Peter turns to a positive command. What should we do? This is what he says. Verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Conduct here has the idea of behavior. Goodness that can be seen by others. Other translations, English translations of this word conduct would be live such good lives. NIV or keep your behavior excellent. That's the NASB. So to keep our conduct honorable means to maintain our own personal behavior in a way that conforms to the word of God, that is in the fear of God, that demonstrates supreme love for God and love for others. It's behavior that is righteous, honest, morally pure, considerate, kind, and unselfish. It's conduct that can be recognized by people of the world as a higher standard of righteousness, that they themselves are living, a morality that's greater than they themselves are experiencing. The Christian refuses to participate in certain activities of the world, <coughs> such as getting drunk or being gluttonous with food or taking drugs are participating in sexual immorality. And people may make fun of us and taunt us, but we do not yield to their pressure. We, by the grace of God, seek to remain faithful to Christ. 
even if the whole world is going off into sin, we will not. We're on this earth to please Christ, not to please people. Amen. People are fallible and sinful. Christ is infallible and holy, and by the help of His grace, we will follow Him. This is our calling. To do good deeds. To do good deeds in the name of Christ is one of the main reasons God has saved us. He's transformed us by the Holy Spirit so that we begin more and more to naturally do the things that are good for other people, not just looking out after ourselves. Peter writes later in this same letter, 1 Peter 3.16, he says, Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, by people in the world, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So eventually people are going to see by our Christian behavior that we're genuine and that we're different and they need to look up and take notice. 2 Corinthians 8.21 For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. So we seek to obey the laws, respect our governmental leaders, and so forth. Philippians 2.15 Paul says that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. This is our own generation. We're seeing it more and more. It's crooked. It's twisted. We have to be lights for Christ, for the Word of God. Paul urges his son in the faith, Timothy. He, he says this, urge Appeal to the young men to be sensible in all things. Show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. So, Peter is telling us to live honorable lives in this world so that when they speak evil against us, they may see our good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now what is the day of visitation? Mr. Alan Stibbs notes that biblically visitation means a special drawing near to God, a special drawing near of God to deal with men either in judgment or in mercy. So, some people believe the day of visitation refers to the day when the gospel came to us, when Christ visited us with salvation, and one of the things that was used to convince us that Jesus Christ was real was what we observed in the lives of Christian people around us. That influenced us to come to Christ. Other people would interpret this day of visitation as being the day of Christ's return and the future judgment. And there, uh, those who are being judged 
would still glorify God because of the good works that they had seen in Christians' lives. Well, whichever way the meaning may be for that expression, the basic idea is clear. That is that the good deeds, the good works of Christian people are evidence of true godliness of the work of God in a human life and they bring glory to God. So, just by living our lives as genuine Christians in our interactions with people around us and doing good deeds and good things, we bring glory to God. Nothing that we do in the Christian life is insignificant. Everything is important. Everything has the potential to bring glory to God. Wow, what a marvelous calling and privilege He's given us. At work, in the home, with friends, at school, wherever. Everything that we do that is good, which is a result of the faith at work in our lives, is evidence of the work of God by His Spirit within us. And it brings glory to God. When we abstain from the passions of the flesh and instead demonstrate godly behavior, we bring honor and glory to God. When we live honorably before God and people, we are living a genuine Christian life and we glorify our God. After all, this world is no longer our permanent home. We're here for just a while. Our life is like a vapor. It'll soon pass away. But we are heading for a permanent country, a permanent country, Amen. where we shall dwell with our Savior, Hallelujah. the heavenly city, whose builder and maker is God himself. We've been given a new heart, a new nature, the inner presence of the Holy Spirit. The passions of the flesh no longer enslave us. Christ has broken their power. As sojourners, as exiles, as aliens here on the earth, let us live for Christ's glory and do all things to please Him. Then we can be instruments here on earth to bring Him praise and also bring good to others. Hallelujah. Amen. What a great calling and life he has given us. Let's pray. Wonderful Father, out of darkness you have delivered us and brought us into Christ's wonderful light. Use us, we pray, in your service. And for your honor, we ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen.